0: grace, so let's just keep, keep with that theme. I'll pray and we'll get started here. Father God, I do thank you this morning that we're able to gather together to be able to study doctrine, to be able to share with one another um, the ways that you've shaped and formed our own minds, and Lord, that we can even learn to grow and continue to grow in our understanding of who you are, the way you relate to us, the way you uh, have engaged with us, Scripture, and you have shown yourself to be in relationship with us. Lord, we pray this morning as we think about the doctrine of the covenant of grace, Lord, would you help us uh, to see you more clearly? Uh, Lord, would you help us to understand you more clearly? And Lord, would you help us uh, to encourage and edify one another even as we process this rich topic? We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, Good morning. As we continue along here, um, we are continuing in our doctrine series. So it's kind of doctrine for the Christian life, thinking about doctrine in context of what does it mean for our lives? How do we process these things? How do we think about these things in the world we live in? And so doctrine is this big, massive topic we looked at a while ago in general uh, that is somewhat off-putting because of how... um, how firm it sounds, how unforgiving it sounds, and how hostile it sounds to people's opinions. And yet there's a richness to it that gives us something to stand on, the ability to hold on to something and state it very clearly to say, I believe this about my God. I believe this about my faith. And we know that we can hold these things because these are doctrines of Scripture. These are things that have been held to over the Many many years of the church that God has given to us very plainly, and there is a sorting out of which doctrines uh, are more firm and more stable, and which doctrines are maybe less stable. And so, but we get into some of these, and they become very central to our faith, very central to everything that we hold to and believe. So we've looked at some really really rich doctrines (coughs) as we think about the doctrine of Scripture. How do we believe everything that we believe about God? How do we receive General revelation from God himself. And this is, I mean, this becomes very central. What do you believe about that? What do you believe about that? Is Is—is scripture the word of God, actually, or is it just something else? And we, we wrestled with that. The doctrine of God himself. A fairly massive topic as you think about who God is. And we broke this into two different parts, thinking about approaching God and studying him. On some level, it's like, well, good and fine. Let's just do that. But on another level, this is, A fairly fearful topic when you think of coming before the creator of all creation and defining him in a doctrine. That's something we do fairly humbly, or we should do humbly, as Moses approached God for the first time taking his shoes off. That's kind of the the mentality or the heart attitude we probably should have when we think about the doctrine of God and the character of God himself. There is a humility we probably need to have even as we study that to recognize this is the way I understand you, but I am willing to listen to you and follow you and understand that there is certainly more to my God than, than I understand. Uh, and so then we have moved on into the doctrine of creation, thinking of how and why did God create us? This becomes fairly foundational for everything we think about life. Why are we here? What is our purpose? What is the way in which God created things? And there's a richness to that just as we think about the world we live in and all the questions that people come back again and again to the church, to Scripture, to their own understanding of life. And in the doctrine of creation, you kind of have these patterns set. So this doctrine becomes really rich and robust for us to say, I can hold on to something. I know what Scripture says about this. And I know that there is a way that I was indeed created to be, to live, To live in relationship to God. And so this morning we're continuing on from the doctrine of creation, and there's somewhat of a. Oh, and the the doctrine of sin, another big one that we looked at last week. And this is kind of the antithesis of the doctrine of creation, where everything was created good, and then you see the perversion of it, the corruption of it. You see this pattern in Genesis even God created this, and it was good, and this, and it was good, and it was good, and everything created was good. And now it is destroyed. It's made corrupt, perverse. There is this parasite that has come in and ruined the entire thing, seemingly. And yet, God doesn't leave us here. He actually continues in relationship with man. And so, there is some language within Scripture that we're going to pull apart. One of the doctrines that was uh, very familiar to Reformed theologians, those who emphasize the work of God, those who see God as acting upon man. Uh, One of the doctrines that we often hold to is the doctrine of the covenant of grace. And even in that, it's kind of a daunting (laughs) sounding doctrine because it is not familiar language to us. And yet this is quite simply just talking about how am I to relate to God? How do I relate to God? If I stand before God, now that sin has entered in, we we have some concept of I don't get to just walk into God's house anymore. I don't get to walk in the garden like Adam and Eve did. There has to be a definition for what does this relationship look like. Even for them, Adam and Eve, there was a definition for that relationship. So we are looking at one of the most central features of our faith, how I relate to God. (coughs) Uh, Even as we think about these things, a couple quotes that you have here on your page uh, in the Odyssey, Homer recognized just the general need of us to know how to relate to gods. He said, all humans have need of the gods. And they had a certain perspective of what is it like to relate to some aspect of a divine being. And he told stories related to this. Herman Bavinck, a Reformed theologian, says, The universal reality of misery, or sin, evokes in all people a need for deliverance. A deliverance from above. There is some recognition. I need relationship with God. Something outside of this world because of sin. Louis Burkhoff, another theologian, says, It is grace from beginning to end for the sinner. Thinking of the relationship that they have with God. It is grace from beginning to end for the sinner. Isaac Watts, uh, who had uh, written many hymns, Uh, And you'll recognize probably a line from this that he had stated. He comes to make his blessing flow far as the curse is found. So you start to get this picture a little bit that there are glimpses that we understand that there are ways that I know to relate to God. There are ways I know I shouldn't relate to God. So one of the questions I'd love to just get things going this morning as you think of how do I relate to God? There are certain ways that we can relate to others in general. And so we might just think about what are the different types of relationship that we might think of and just think in humanly terms of uh, your neighbor or someone else. So what are what are some of these different relationships and what is the significant distinction maybe? maybe help? What was that? Crying out for help? Yeah, so to what type of relationship, who would you cry to? What type of, what, total stranger? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there's a parent relationship. Yeah, so I'm getting at like kind of the, there's a parent type relationship. So that's a certain relationship. And so a father would be, you know, my dad sitting right here. Like there's a relationship that we have that's a very tight bond. Family is a very tight bond. What are the other types of relationship we have just in our society? Sibling relationship, another family relationship, very, very close. Coworker, gets a little more distant, but there's a common connection. There's some the De- definition to that <coughs> of what is uh, required of you at work, the way you must relate to each other, the, I mean, there's certain times you have to be there, certain ways you have to behave when you're there. It's like <laughs> the millennial and Gen X, Gen Z are like, I want to work at home because I don't like that. But yeah, there's very much that type of relationship. <coughs> other relationships you can think of. Spouse, that's a very central <coughs> relationship which would recognize. It would closely resemble what God is after, the covenant relationship, right? So there's some of that language already that we recognize. <coughs> Other ones. Just an acquaintance, someone you just kind of see here and there. Not much definition at all. So you'd say, oh, there's uh, someone I kind of know and someone else who knows you well is like, oh, you know that guy? You're like, oh, I've seen him before. <laughs> you know, there's not much that you would ask from or to that person maybe, but you recognize them. You might acknowledge them in public. Yeah, there's hard relationships. There's, and it could be from really close places. You might have different levels of enemies of um, yeah, just really hard relationships that are very, very close, very hard relationships that are just like, man, that guy was a, a total jerk in line. I can't believe him. <laughs> uh, many enemies and major enemies. I don't know. We could define it however we want. Uh, other types of relationships. Yeah, just helping us think about the way we relate to others helps us also. God tells us the way we relate to Him in these terms as well. I think of also just, um, there are contractual relationships I have with businesses. Um, there's also like consumer relationships. I go to the store. And it's like, I love this store. I'm always going to go to the store. And then, you know, Home Depot sells something cheaper than Lowe's. And I'm like, oh, I now love Home Depot. I'm going to go to this store for these things. <laughs> It's uh, my new favorite, but th- it's not, you know, it's, it's kind of the world we live in. It's not necessarily, b- if you did that with a spouse, like, very wrong. In a consumer relationship, uh, it becomes a fine and appropriate thing. In fact, that's kind of the nature of the relationship. And sometimes, even if you know someone who owns a business, they're like, I can't get something for that price, go over there. You know, it's, it's a non-offensive thing. It's, I will give you a good for your service. Did you have? Like a yeah. There is very much a... The hierarchical relationship that we have, especially in different cultures, they change. Some are more severe when you think of, you know, kind of a monarchy, uh, other than England, which seems to be (laughs) less authoritative now. But uh, in general, like we see it in history, that that type of relationship is very hierarchical. And then our own relationship with our government has a certain expectation why you see people get so frustrated when the government steps in too far, like, We know what the relationship's defined like. (laughs) How dare you step over the line? We made an agreement. Um, Any others as we think about this? And we'll move on. What's that? A guide, guide, yeah, just someone who's kind of still kind of a consumer relationship, but it's going to be a little more relational, I suppose, especially for that period of time. And that's another one. It's like, for this period of time, I'm your best friend. (laughs) After that, and you stop paying me, maybe not so much anymore. Dr. Patient as well, like there's a relationship and it, and I mean these change as you kind of grow to know them more, but there's a definition. So as you think about God, some of this starts to help us, that there are different ways that we relate to people, and there's a different ways that we learn to relate to God. Some of them appropriate, some of them inappropriate, but God has actually already defined this, and this is what we are talking about when we say the doctrine of the covenant of grace, this is defining the way in which God has said, I have set out to relate to you. And sometimes we don't listen to that, and we just relate to him however we want. In um, some of these other ways that we've kind of learned that we think are appropriate to one degree or another. Um, and we sometimes wonder why do we have to use such archaic language, covenant? Can't we come up with something more relatable, something more usable? And yet, I don't know that there is any word within our modern context and society that is not given to us by Scripture this way that actually fulfills the need of what it is. Uh, we've pulled it into marriage, but that is about the only type of place that it actually fits perfectly. There's contractual relationships, but they are different than a covenant relationship, far different than a covenant relationship. And so it is something that is, uh, we can't really get away from it. Uh, and so modern society, as we think of it today, and we've looked at the idea of modernity, the way moderns work, and the way that we work in some senses, we don't have this idea. And one of the ways that we often think of, um, the one, the one of the main ways we treat things is kind of in consumer relationships. And so this is kind of like, uh, if I do something for you, you're going to give something back to me. And I base it on, and this is even within marriage, we often see this, this, what it should be a covenant relationship. How does this usually work out? You've probably heard it. It is, I will be who I promise to be so long as you fulfill your end of the bargain too. So long as you hold up to it. And I will to the degree that you do as well. So this consumer relationship is, I'll do what I'm supposed to do as long as you do what you're supposed to do. But that is not a covenant relationship. That's a consumer-type relationship, and that is much more contractual, right? If you, if you, if you start to slack a little bit, I'm going to bring <laughs> the level of commitment down with you. And we see this sometimes in workplaces. I mean, you just, you've seen this all over the place. And we often do this in some senses with God. We definitely do this within marriage at times. We see this, and this is not the way God has said things are set up. But a covenant relationship, if we think about this in general— would be defined much more this way. I will be what I should be uh, regardless of the way you act. I will be what I should be regardless of the way that you act and whether you do what you should do or not. And so that changes things. And that starts to define it around the way we expect marriage should be, that I am going to commit to you as long as we both shall live. (laughs) till death do us part. And it's not saying if you do these things, and yet that's how we live it out at times to say if you do these things and I will do these things. But covenant relationship is not that way. And this is the way God views it. This is the way God has set it up. God has defined our relationship very clearly. So as we think about our relationship with God, as we think about This doctrine of the covenant of grace, we're asking the question, how do I relate to God? And so as a doctrinal statement, if we're trying to synthesize this into something that is tangible, this is not necessarily highly authoritative, but it's something that should be fairly easy to grab hold of as we think about this. Uh, So one thing that I, as I synthesize all this into just a, a thought, go with me here. Man relates to God by God's grace through covenant relationship. A few things you're supposed to hear in there is man relates to God by God's grace. That should be highlighted. It is by God's grace, as Lewis Burkhoff said, it is grace from beginning to end. Man relates to God by God's grace through covenant relationship. So that is something that I think we believe, we hold to, and yet at times, just as with marriage, we sometimes don't act in accordance with the way that God has set things up. To say, I will be your God, you will be my people. I will be your God, you will be my people. This is kind of the covenant formula. To say there is a relationship defined and there is expectations already on the table right there. To say, I will be your God, your God, personal pronoun, I will be your God, you will be my people. And there is implications of what it means to be God's people, of certain expectations along with that I will be your God. Very basic definition of a relationship. And God goes on much further to define things, but that's the very basis of the covenant with people and the relationship with people. Um, as we think about a covenant, what is a covenant? This is one of the main areas. This is kind of a vague abstract. Um, I've got a definition, I think, on your paper, but as you think about this, that we start, we're starting to just dip our toes in the, into the water of how we relate to God through covenant relationship, how God relates to us through covenant relationship. Uh, it's a fairly foreign topic, really, to many of us. It's very diff- fairly difficult. Uh, as you think of a covenant relationship, um, even with God, is this a, one, is this a new idea to you? And if it's not, how have you understood this to be? Just curious. Um it's probably not a new idea to you but just the language might be so a new idea to you or and if it's not how have you understood this in the past not a new idea to me. Yeah but it's a bond <laughs> that God has made with me at his expense hmm. Yeah Yeah that's a good a good working definition if you were to put it Relationships are always hard to define. It's like, define a mother. It's like, well, <laughs> look at all the things she does. <laughs> like, it's hard to define certain relationships, but that's pretty good as far as definitions go, a bond that he had to pay something for. Yeah, there's some some, some payment on that. Yeah, any others? Or just the familiarity even? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's... Uh, kind of a rich language of promise within covenant of these are the things I promise so and it our minds immediately latch on to that idea of contract but there's promise in there yeah faithfulness yeah it's kind of that idea of not a consumer relationship but I'm going to do what I promised regardless of what you do yep yep So, O Palmer Robinson, it's a great name, by the way. O Palmer. O Palmer. I wonder how they addressed him. Uh, o Palmer. O Palmer. Uh, anyway, I'm going to leave that there. Uh, so, he defines this. He's written a fantastic book on covenants. Uh, if you read much on covenants, uh, if you read much systematic theology, you can be reading on the cov- Doctrine of the Covenant of Grace, and almost like it seems like half of the time, if not more, uh, the guy they're footnoting is O Palmer Robinson. So there's <laughs> he is a well-known guy in this in this study, and so he he understands these things well. He's not necessarily easy to read himself, but he is extremely rich in what he understands about this. And one of the things he says, just on basic definition, and he understands the difficulty even of defining this. He says this is very hard to define because it's it's experienced to some degree and it's seen to some degree, but if you're to define it. Uh, he would say a a covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. A bond in blood sovereignly administered. I will be your God. You will be my people. It's kind of the way that starts. So if we say bond in blood, I mean, this is kind of, there's some rich language there that you recognize like, man, that's like blood brothers language I remember this when I was a kid like <laughs> the relationship got a little more serious when blood got involved I don't know why but we kind of know this intuitively that if something has to shed its blood to ratify this relationship or to establish this relationship the stakes have gone up to a certain degree to say this is very serious This is a very serious relationship. This is not just like a general acquaintance. This is not even just a consumer relationship, but there is something on the line here that is far more serious than most relationships. A bond in blood, sovereignly administered. So from the higher authority to the lower authority. When you think of the authority of God, I mean, there are covenant relationships between kings and their subjects. And sometimes the relationship was sovereignly administered there. And the relationship between God is similarly, I am God, creator of all things, who can speak and things out of nothing come to be, and I'm going to enter in a relationship with you. And I'm going to seal this with a covenant that is ratified by blood, a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. So, strange language, but we start to see that this is not just any mere relationship that we have with God. And this, actually, before we get too lost in the weeds, this is the z- very central thing of our faith in Jesus Christ. This is the very central point of our faith in Jesus Christ. Is it's all built upon this. As we look at communion, we're being pointed back to the very central relationship nature the blood of Jesus shed for you, the body of him broken for you, you start to get a picture of this is defined very, very clearly by God. As we continue on here, we'll look at, um, yeah. Sorry, go again. Not necessarily, but it is set up by God. God is administering it. So he is the one setting up, defining it, showing how this is going to work. Similar to if a king said, I will protect you. These are the things I'm going to do to you. You pay taxes to me. So he's setting it up, and there's kind of a two-way relationship. If you pay taxes, you live here. I'm going to provide protection. I'm going to build some wells. I'm going to build a wall. Like, you get these things. So there's a two-way relationship, but there might be different. It's not necessarily like... Uh in marriage there's a, a little bit more of a one to one, like I'm gonna love you, you love me. <laughs> uh we're both gonna show up at the Anyway, so it's a, it's much more from the sovereign down to the the one who's under. So sovereignly administered is all set up by him. So could you look at it like a contract that two parties the one party to yeah, there's, uh, well, Well, can we continue on? I think that'll get answered. (laughs) So, uh, uh, yes and no. That'll be my answer for now. Uh, Let's look um, at Deuteronomy chapter 29. It's just, this is not necessarily... um, This is kind of a neat passage because it just gives us... Uh, We're looking at the beginning 18 verses, 29, gives us a picture of the way that God speaks to his people, his covenant people. And Deuteronomy is kind of like this fun book because it's a collection of sermons as they reflect back on the relationship that that God had with man. And so Moses is kind of looking back, and he's like, remember the things God promised you. Do those things. Remember the way we screwed up. Remember. And so it's very reflective in that sense. So Deuteronomy chapter 29. So this is... uh, Helpful also because it's speaking in terms of covenant renewal, of reminding the people of what's going on here as he renews this covenant. And it reemphasizes this. Uh, So I'll just read, if you have your Bibles, do follow along, because it's a little bit longer. Uh, But there is some valuable insights to be brought from this passage. So Deuteronomy 29. These are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant that he made with them at Hareb And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, you have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and his servants and to all his land. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs to those. And those great wonders, but to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. I have led you forty years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn on you, and your sandals have not worn off your feet. You have not eaten bread. You have not drunk wine or strong drink. And you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. And when you came to this place, Sion, the king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Basham, came out against us to battle, and we defeated them. And we took their land and gave it as an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half tribe of the uh, Manassites. Therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them, that you may prosper in all you do. You are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders, and your officers. All the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, the sojourner who is in your camp, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today, that he may establish you today as his people, and that he may be your God as he promised you, and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob It is not with you alone that I am making this sworn covenant, but with whoever is standing here with us today before the Lord our God and with whoever is not here with us today. Uh, We'll read this next little section too. Uh, You know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how you came through the midst of the nations through which you passed and you have seen their detestable things their idols of wood and stone of silver and gold which were among them beware lest there be among you a man or a woman or a clan or a tribe whose heart is turning away today from the lord our god to go and serve the gods of those nations beware lest there be among you of root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit there is plenty more there and that is a longer section of Scripture, but as you think of the nature of the relationship with God, some of the tendency is just to take little snippets of Scripture sometimes and just build my theology of God based on those. And if you read these passages in the Old Testament in a little bit of a larger section, sometimes you just see the way that God relates as it unfolds. And just even as you read that, you start to see, I will be your God, you will be my people. It's covenant relationship has some defining characteristics, anything that just jumps out to you as you heard that. I mean, it's, there's a lot there, but especially in terms of covenant relationship as we continue that conversation on. This idea of remembering, that is, it's bringing it to mind, but it's a remembrance that drives you towards action, to say, I live in response to these things. I live under the the influence of what this means, the implications of what God has done for me. You are a free people. Don't run back to Egypt. (laughs) You live as free people. Remember that I delivered you from that. Remember that I cared for you in that. So continue forward as I lead you and guide you. Absolutely. Anything else? Hmm. Mm. Yeah. Definition of a covenant starts to say like sovereignly administered. God's grace is what this is all based upon. Absolutely. He even showed it to you. Like <laughs> the hardness and coldness of our hearts don't, don't naturally see it or it's just the inability of our finiteness. Um, yeah. Mm. yeah. 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 Well, yeah, there's very much and there is a sense like our relationship is very personal. God sees each one of us and God has poured out, Jesus has poured out his blood for each and every single person and their personal sins. So the relationship is very personal, but it's also like with the people. Jesus is coming back for his church. And in the Old Testament, God made a relationship. He said, everyone who's with you today, (laughs) people who chop the wood, who gather the water, I mean, all these people around here, these are the people that the covenant is with. But I will be God to them so long as there's a definition here. Let's continue on as we think of this covenant. This becomes a helpful way to enter in and just to start to see how do you live in covenant relationship with God? You start to see, well, it's not that foreign to me, but I didn't maybe know exactly how it was framed. So one of the things that we start to learn, um, and so as the have done some excavations, learned about um, kind of the ancient Near East and different patterns of the way they lived. We see these things in Scripture again and again, but the way they would define this is a suzerain-vassal relationship, so a king-subject relationship. And so what they would often do in this type of relationship, it would be kind of like a king coming to his people, and there would be multiple elements of this type of relationship. There would be kind of a preamble. There would be a historical prologue, and there would be promises and stipulations. So in the preamble, I mean, the king would kind of say, who am I? <laughs> Why do I get this right to enter into relation? relationship? Who am I? And God would say, and we think of one of the covenants in Exodus, the covenant uh, of the law, the covenant that God made with Moses, right? So, uh He says, I am the Lord your God. Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God. There is this idea of just this preamble. He's saying, who am I? I am the Lord your God. And then it gives a little bit of backstory. This historical prologue. This type of relationship was defined by this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And he goes on to tell, like, what have I done for you already? How have I earned relationship with you to a certain degree already before I've even defined it. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of slavery. And then it enters into promises and stipulations as we just saw in that passage. And we can even see these um, as it goes on in Jeremiah chapter 30. As God calls people back to covenant faithfulness, he often says, you shall be my people and I will be your God. You shall be my people, do all the things that that demands. There are things in which the ways you are to live, you're to be a holy people, set apart, living the way I should live. And even Jesus would reiterate these things. In John chapter 14, if you love me, what will you do? You will keep my commands. If you love me, you will keep my commands. There's a definition to the relationship that starts to be, we start to recognize that this covenant relationship is rich throughout Scripture. The way that you relate to God is not just abstract or meaningless. And so if we're to take a few of these things, there's this rich aspect within the relationship of God to man. it's not necessarily the king-vassal relationship, but there's a few things that God picks up. And there's this rich language of promise that he says, this is what I will do for you. These are the things that I will do for you. There's very much a mediator. Someone who makes sure that these things are established. Someone who makes sure that it operates the way it should operate. He mediates the whole relationship. And there is also a required response. As we think of that king-subject relationship. Promise, response, a mediator. Someone who governs all of this. Hebrews chapter 8. We start to see this language is picked up. Jesus is a better priest. He's a better mediator. Within the covenant of grace, often doctrinal statements will pick up that right after sin and salvation is talking about well, Christ's role as a mediator. He has to operate this way. And so our required response, there is very much A required response that comes into this relationship. How are you to live under my rule? How are you to live if I am God and I'm promising these things? And even in the New Testament, we come to there. Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching to all these people and he's saying, here's the new covenant. Here's all the promises of the new covenant. Here's the things that are coming to you. And the people say, what are we supposed to do? Repent. Be baptized. Every one of you. Turn from the ways you were living. Live under the rule of God. Be baptized. Be brought into this community of believers. This is what baptism is. It's taking you out, washing you, bringing you into the church, the de- defined people of God, the body of Christ, saying now you are part of this thing. Repent. Believe. Live in right relationship with God. And we are not just talking about... a covenant of works though it starts to take this tone a little bit at this point right you start to say well that sounds like I mean high stakes poker like I remember the language we just talked about like blood being involved like that sounds like I'm supposed to do things but there's consequences that are pretty severe if I don't do things I think your mind should go to that so we are talking about the covenant of grace talking about the covenant of grace And you can kind of start to get the picture. We know that it is not works-based. I think we know that. We know that it hasn't been works-based for a very long time. Uh, Just even as we think about this, uh, when did the covenant of grace, as we start to define this, when did it all start? There's been differences of opinion about this throughout church history. Um, And yet I think scripture is actually very, very clear on this, but We often think in different ways around this. So the covenant of grace, you think of the covenant of grace, this is something that we need to understand because this is the entire root and framing of the gospel. God's promise of redemption. God's promise of I will redeem you from your sin. I will do these things for you. So when did this covenant of grace begin? Yeah, in the beginning yeah, what makes you say that? I would I would agree, but what makes you say that? In yeah. God in a, in a place that didn't hmm. That, that Louis Burkhoff, it's grace from beginning to end. Yeah, you came out of nothing and God just gave you things. It seems very gracious already. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Any other ways you've heard this? so you don't have to pull things out of thin air. If you've not heard this, it's okay. So one of the the ways we think about it is, obviously, there is grace throughout God's relationship. If if a king or a lord wants to engage with those who have less power, like, it's always gracious to a certain degree. Uh, but there is very much a definition of how do we relate to God. There's a covenant of works that is classically known. And some would disagree with that because of just what you said. But it's helpful to realize, like, There's a different administration of how this works out. And with Adam being the head at one point, you know, there's this covenant of works. You shall live in right relationship with me. These are the things you're to do. And if you don't do them or you do something and you break what I've told you to do, what comes? Death. Like there's covenant promises and there's covenant stipulations. This starts to give you this picture of covenant. And the covenant of works is such that they broke it. What came? Death came to us all. But it wasn't as bad as it could have been. He probably should have just killed him right there. And yet, he didn't. He's very gracious, even in that picture. And so, the covenant of grace, I mean, in one sense, starts right at that point that he comes back and he says, I will redeem you. Speaking to the snake, he's speaking to the woman. He's saying, Genesis chapter 3, Already he's defining a covenant of redemption that's been since before the foundation of the world. Even in creation, I will redeem these people. And at that moment, he defines it and says, I will redeem you. I will crush the head of the snake, promises. You start to hear this language, and then it gets defined a little more clearly, and this kind of expands out and out and out towards the point that Christ comes. So there is this picture. Many have actually wanted to kind of ignore the fact that it goes back that far and put it in a different spot. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to say. I would have heard that uh, there was the Islamic covenant, mm-hmm. covenant, you know, several covenants in the Old Testament, but this actual covenant of grace was established when Christ came mm. and died. Yeah. Perfect, yeah. And that's probably the main, uh, the other main view is that, you know, Pentecost comes, this is the church age. And here is the new covenant. Maybe it's the covenant of grace. They were saved by works walking through the wilderness, which is why God punished them. And now we're saved by grace. And this view actually was not necessarily a always a long-held view. I don't know if many of you remember the the Schofield Study Bible. Uh, And so this was heavily what they would call dispensational. And so this is saying that God pours His grace out in different dispensations. And uh, we would all be somewhat dispensational to the degree that we believe that God interacts with us differently. Uh, but disp- heavy dispensationalists or old school dispensationalists would say that God actually uh, has a different salvation for Israel than he does for the church. And like for them, it was very much like <laughs> hard-earned sweat equity. And God was gracious to a degree like you had mentioned, but it was not ne- nearly what it is in the New Testament. So these are absolutely different dispensations. So until Christ was resurrected, like it was all works, and that was the way it was meant to be, that if you kept the law and you kept it perfectly, you would be saved. Not a lot of people in heaven before the fall, I would assume, (laughs) if just speaking in jest about it, it's like it's, that you start to recognize, like that. that's a pretty hard word at that point, Um, which does, in that sense, makes it sound a lot sweeter once the covenant of grace would come. But uh, there's many, many others who hold to this. Charles Ryrie, uh, John Feinberg, who's still living. And so this is kind of, there's different aspects of dispensationalism. Some are less hard, saying there may not be two salvations. But they all kind of say that the covenant of grace could start with Christ. Um, and one of the things that I think that we we do start to see that there is a unity, and this is what we hold in our church, and this is what Reformed theologians hold to, and this is kind of covenant theology. Uh, biblical theology holds this to say that there is a unity that seems to tie the whole thing together. If Jesus was prophesied, if uh, Hebrews and Galatians are right to say, you are recipients of the same promise, there's things that really grab onto, Jesus fulfilled all the demands of the law? Like, why did he have to do all these things? Why did Jesus enter in in this type of role? Why is he a better high priest? Why is he fulfilling all of these things? So there seems to be much more of a continuation, pulling from God's eternal plan, the way that God talks about it and says, from before the foundations of the world, I had a people that I loved. This is, uh, there's multiple covenants that God have that all work together for his great plan of redemption. And that is the covenant of redemption saying, before he even established the covenant of grace, he says, I'm going to do this thing. I'm committed to do this thing. And all of a sudden it shows up and it's like, there it is, the peace that fits into my covenant of redemption. And so this is the way many Reformed theologians see it, is that it is not a different dispensation of God's grace, but it is God's grace being poured out and revealed and shown. And God enters in with each of these covenants and starts to show this. So the covenant of grace. So R.C. Sproul says this, the covenant of grace comes into play because the covenant of works was broken. After the fall, we were expo- left exposed to judgment. So there is a sense that there was a need of something different at that point. doesn't mean That it was not in God's view. God's covenant of redemption extends back to for all time, as far as we can imagine. And yet, at this point, we recognize there is a need of something different, as R.C. Sproul points out. Uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 7, says this, thinking of covenant. Man, by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offereth to, unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him, that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained into eternal life, his Holy Spirit, to make them willing and able to, To believe. So the covenant of grace, we would say, especially as we believe it, that this is something that God has established from the garden. Uh, There is certainly grace within God all the way back to (laughs) the beginnings of eternity as he established his covenant of redemption. But the formal relationship of this covenant of grace really did start. At that moment, he says, I will redeem you. I will crush evil. I will crush the head of the serpent. The covenant of grace began there. So what is the covenant of grace? So what is this covenant of grace? We've recognized this kind of tension that starts to exist between God has graciously (laughs) uh, invited me into this relationship, and then he's placed some really high expectations on me. And there's all these laws and rules and things that I'm supposed to do. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Seems like it's still here. It's like, oh man, like grace into like a really heavy (laughs) work relationship. It doesn't feel all that gracious. And yet Jesus says, my burden is light. (laughs) You're like, wow, that feels weird. Feels like a catch-22. And yet I don't think Jesus was, you know, playing a game with us. I think he actually meant it. When he says, this is the best relationship you could be in. This is the best relationship you could be in. My burden is light. Uh, Judges chapter 2. Um, if you have your Bibles, we'll look at this really quick just to define this very briefly. So um, when we think of this, we ask the question of, is it? Is this relationship based on laws or based on love uh someone gets there J- read verse i think it's just verse 1 yeah hmm. i think i wanted more than that You're much faster than me getting to your Bible verses. So you hear this language. God says, I will not break my covenant with you, period. This sounds covenantal. And then as you enter into <laughs> relationship with the nations and you do those things, I will not bless you. I will not give you the land. I will not do the things I promised to you unless you're faithful. And you're like, wow, that." <laughs> the tension is palpable there between the relationship of is it law or is it love? Is it a relationship based on the, the loving kindness of God that goes beyond what we expect it to go to, or is it based on if you do these things, I'll give you these things, and you feel this tension that begins to pull here, and it feels very, very stark. Turn to Genesis chapter 15 as we look at the way that God sets up his covenant. This is not left this way, even though it. Feels this way at moments. Genesis chapter 15, as God sets up the Abrahamic covenant. This is one of the covenants. Genesis 15, uh, verses 12 through 21, and I'll just read this here. It says, "As the sun was going down, this is God is setting the stage. He's building this relationship with Abraham. He's, are he's defining how is God going to relate to a people." And Abraham says, how do I know that you're going to give me all these? Like, you're, you're talking big talk. I'm going to give you land, blessing, a land flowing with milk and honey, all these things. And Abraham's like, how do I know? <laughs> like, show me. So God sets up a covenant, something that would have not been, even for the readers of Genesis and for Abraham, would not have been that strange. Like, oh, this is like that, like, you know, kings do this. Like, they, they set up these relationships. And he expects this to happen. Uh, there's a sacrifice given showing the severity And all these things that are set up, and he's saying, this is what I will do for you. This is what you must do for me. And if you break it, you know, what happens to the animal that was slaughtered will surely happen to me. So let's do read this 12 through 21. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and that they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in good old age, and they... Shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down, and it was dark, behold, smoking a smoking pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river of Euphrates. The land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, and the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Rephaim. I'll stop there. There's too many names. But it's a big land. Uh, And one of the things you start to see here is God has just defined this covenant relationship. It's defined. It's not abstract. We like the fact that it's defined because it's saying that there is actual substance to this relationship. It's not just whatever I want it to be. It's a false dichotomy thinking I get to deal with God any way I want and I just live the way I want but God says no I am going to establish this relationship it's not law or love in fact it is the satisfaction of both there is this tension that exists there exists there and God actually solves it and what does he do here he puts Abraham to sleep God manifests himself and walks between the two pieces of this animal split in two essentially what's being said if I break the, bless, the, the promises of this covenant, as God, as the Lord here, what happens to this animal? If I don't bless you and do all the things I promised to you, may what happened to this animal happen to me. If God doesn't bless and provide the blessing he promised, he's going to be torn into two, displayed for all to see. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be mocked, scorned. And then he puts Abraham to sleep and he says, if you don't do the things that I have commanded you to do. If I don't make sure that you've done them, if I don't ensure this, like if you don't keep your end, I'm going to be also beaten, mock scorned. So right here at this point, you start to see God has taken on both aspects of the covenant. There is certainly a requirement for us to be obedient. And he has taken on the punishment for us not obeying to say, When Jesus came, what happened to him? God didn't turn away from his promise. But he was beaten, scorned, mocked, stabbed, punched, jabbed with things. I mean, his body was left beyond mutilation. You get the picture. He did take the the curse of the covenant. He did take this, and he redeemed it. He restored it. All the things he promised continued on. All the things that God had promised, he said, I will make you a new covenant. I will place the law on your hearts. Make it so that you do obey me. I will make it. It's a passive verb. He's saying, I'm going to make this happen in you. For the people of God. Doesn't mean that nothing changes in someone's heart. They say, well, God's going to do it. It's like, he's gonna, you're going to do it. This is the fruit of the spirit. You will be doing these things. And this starts to take away the pride say, I'm doing all these things. It's saying, no, I have a responsibility to do these things. These are things that I must do. But it is all based on the grace of God. He has made it possible. He has made it happen. O. Palmer Robinson says, God had absolutely no obligation to man once He had revolted against the Almighty's will and aligned himself with the serpent who is Satan. But God is gracious. He bound himself by oath. Although man proved to be ungrateful, self-willed, a self-willed rebel, God chose to obligate himself to the sinner. This was the picture that we start to see that God did this knowing he would be torn in two. He did this knowing the only way for this covenant relationship to work for you to live in relationship with me as if I take the punishment. Is it law or is it grace? It is containing both. He's saying there is a right order to the world. There is a right way to live. And yet I am taking the punishment for your rebellion. So I can't, like works-based righteousness says, I still am trying to earn that right relationship through my obedience. I'm saying, I don't want the works of Christ (laughs) who took it for me. But there is a works that starts to be produced in response to these things. So what is the unity of the covenants as we close here? What is the unity of the covenants? There is, as we've talked about, this great picture and plan that brings all of these things together. It brings all of these things together. Michael uh, Williams says this, The new covenant, as we think of it, is not new after all, categorically new. The difference is redemptive historical. That is to say, it is not a difference between two categorically different religions or two different sorts of covenant relationship between God and humankind. It is rather a single unfolding covenant story that moves towards greater levels of fulfillment of divine promise. And there is a unity within Scripture. As you look at Scripture, back of your ESV study Bibles, if you have them, one of the things that it talks about is the, the, the story of redemption. And it mentions this in each book. And in the back it identifies um, something that's very familiar to this picture. God has been working his story of redemption in this big arc. And this arc is defined by creation, fall, redemption, Restoration, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And it is all working to a single end. That God says, I will be your God, you will be my people. I will live in covenant relationship with you. I will make this happen. And You look at scripture and you say, how is this working within the pattern of covenant redemption? Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. It is this overarching picture of everything that is going on. So what are the different ways? There are some differences. Westminster at larger catechism, it does define this. The covenant of grace in the Old Testament. It's weird to even think of that. Uh, we've been so patterned to think the covenant of grace is not the Old Testament. But they say the covenant of grace was administered under the Old Testament by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Passover, and other types and ordinances, which all four signify Christ then to come and it goes on from there the covenant of grace was administered through these things that god gave to us this was not works as we just saw the way that god entered in with abraham it was all grace to say god is working these things and it certainly is different now they define under the new testament uh, the grace of god is seen a different way under the new testament when christ the substance was exhibited the same covenant of grace was and is still to be administered in the preaching of the word, administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, in which grace and salvation are held forth in more fullness, evidence, efficacy to all nations. And there is a moving out. As God's story comes to fruition, it's all of a sudden like it came down to a single person. It comes into Abraham and then blessing to the, him and his nations, and it, he gets more land, and all these things start to move out, and it keeps going, and people come in, and then all of a sudden, Jesus comes, and it's like, we're going to blow the, loot, r- the, the lid off this thing, and it goes to the Gentiles, and even the leaders were like, can we really share the gospel of the Gentiles? Is this really part of the plan? God's covenant of redemption would say, yes, to all nations, all people will be part of my kingdom doesn't mean everyone accepts it, but this is where it heads. There's a universal picture here. O. Palmer Robinson, just to to pull from him one more time, he says, "...diversity indeed exists in various administrations of God's covenants. This diversity enriches the wonder of God's plan for His people, but the diversity ultimately merges into a single purpose overarching the ages." covenant with Adam, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, Moses, David, and ultimately through Christ and the new covenant, all these things are pictures of God's grace. And so as Lewis Burkoff said, it's grace from beginning to end. This is the way, so we start to ask the question, how do I relate to God? God has defined things. You shall be my people. This is how it shall look. But it is entirely established and based upon my grace. This is why we say, you want to enter into a relationship with Jesus, what do you do? Repent and be baptized, accept all the work of Christ on your behalf. And you start to see that this relationship with God, there's, there's lots to process as I think about how does that change the way I relate to God? Um, really quick as we close and I'll pray. Um, you think of the type of relationship. Does that type of relationship Teach you anything about how you relate to God? In the one sense, like there's a I want to get these things from God. God has accomplished all these things for you on your behalf. Yeah. there is a uh, um, a recognition of my stability before God when I place my faith in him and I've accepted these to see the the way that God interacts with his people to say that there's a stability of that relationship between me and God it's not going anywhere so something to think to pray to rest in to say is this all really true? <laughs> Does God really relate to me that way? And that is where the faith of the believer really comes into play to say, these promises really are what they say they are. God really has done what he said he has done. We live in response to that, not to earn that relationship, or not just because we think he is operating the way he, we think he should operate. God, doesn't seem like you're loving me right now. I'm only going to love you up to the point that I think you're loving me we often do that, even if we don't admit it. Let's do pray as we close and reflect on these things. Father God, we do thank you that you indeed are a gracious God. You have planned all of the ways in which you will bless us, which you will define the relationship with us. Since before the world was formed, you've had this covenant of redemption laid out Lord, I pray as we understand and think on these things, as we begin to wrestle with these things, Lord, would you strengthen our hearts and our trust in you? Would you help us to grapple with these things with one another, to push one another towards the gospel, to see all that you've accomplished on our behalf? And would, Lord, would that produce in us lives that live in response to this?